Hi, we're back with Mind Rolling. And I'm Raghu, and I'm back with Mark Epstein, a new friend who's not really new because we have so many mutual close friends. Uh, it's not even funny, right, Mark? Been around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So I'm happy to have you here, and uh, we're going to be talking about Mark's new book, Advice Not Given, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself. And I don't know how many times... I've used a similar aphorism, actually, with, with people who get really stuck. Uh, can you just ignore yourself here for a little bit? Uh, you know what I mean? And uh, so when I saw Get Over Yourself, I love the title, Mark. I you love, love the title? Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. It's I'm really glad. Great. Really great. Um, so one of our very close mutual friends for both of us and... I kind of knew because I know you've spent a lot of time with Sharon and Joseph and Jack, who are part of the Be Here Now Network, podcasters. And uh, But it, it took me reading the book to really get an idea of just how uh, how close you are to Sharon. And, and she has, and I feel the same and am the same. And she's been an incredible teacher for me, as well as a, a really good friend. And of course, we've been we spend time every year because she comes out to Maui and she's close to Ram Dass and Krishna Das and we have these retreats, and as you know. And uh, so I, in reading some of the stuff your publicist sent as well, there was one particular quote that really caught me, and that was huh. from Bob Thurman, another friend. Um, and he termed the book, A True Treasure of a Guide to being real. And I, I read that and I went, Jesus, that's really uh, good timing because some time ago, a good friend of ours who does podcasts named Duncan Trussell, uh, he, he said to Sharon in one of these uh, sessions we had out in Maui at the retreat, uh, Sharon, what do you do for your practice? And Sharon said, I get up, I sit down on my mat, and I Get real, Duncan. And, you know, <laughs> that, Good for Sharon. Yeah. Uh, and I've been, I don't know how many, I've been talking to a lot of our mutual friends from, you know, all of our Vipassana friends and Bob and everybody. And everyone goes, God, I don't know. She didn't say that to me. That's so excellent. And, and then that started me off on a conversation about what that really means. And then in a, uh, Sharon and I did something uh, with a couple of people, Duncan and uh, Ethan Nickturn uh, and David Silver over at uh, Deepak Chopra Theater uh, a few months ago, and she got into it, and she said, I think we need to call it getting real, mm -hmm. you know, because it is a process. And, um, and, and this book is very much, uh, very, very much along those lines, and I thought what Bob said is absolutely true. And uh, in this interview, I read an interview you did, a beautiful interview. It was in the Times uh, a month ago or so. Um, you said, the ego wants security and stability and coherence. It's rooted in the intellect, so it tells stories. It fastens on to the first stories that start to make sense, both positive and negative. And, uh, and when I, we, Sharon and I talked about this, it was... It was how, what are we talking about getting real? And certainly starting point is the stories we tell ourselves. Can you elaborate a little bit? <laughs> well, I think Sharon should do a book called Getting Real. Yeah, I'm be being the, current. Uh, 
Absolutely. That would be that would be so good from her. I I used um, I used Sharon as a case study in the in this book mm. um, around the, the the chapter on right speech uh, because I, w- I wanted to reinterpret all of the aspects of the eightfold path instead of the sort of classic uh, portrayal of them. I tried to turn them inward a little bit. So I I talked about right speech as the way we talk to ourselves, not just the way we talk to others. Conventionally, it's about not gossiping and uh, you know not wasting your time talking uh, about other people. But I wanted to make people aware of how, uh, how weird the way we talk to ourselves can be. And Sharon, Sharon wrote that, you know, in faith, I'm very interested in the spiritual teachers writing personally. Mm. And they, they, they hardly ever do. I, I think I think Ramdas was always a great master at using his personal um, foibles to illustrate uh, spiritual lessons, and I was very influenced by that. Sharon, in, in her book Faith, uh, is the most personal that she uh, has ever been in her writing, where she talks about the early traumas of her childhood, uh, how she was an eight-year-old, nine-year-old girl sitting in her ballerina outfit with her mother watching television when her mother started to bleed and uh, Sharon had to call a doctor and her mother was rushed to the hospital and uh, she never saw her mother again and she talks about the uh, what she calls the ambient opaque silence that surrounds her in the wake of that early traumatic experience and how she started making up stories about what was wrong with her to explain all the losses and um, uh, Sharon's example is, you know, uh, intense, more intense than what most of us have experienced, but um, uh, we all do that to some degree. So I was inspired by, uh, by her story and tried to use it in my book for other people. Yeah. No, it's a powerful story and uh, a testament to who she is as a person right now, uh, never mind spiritual teacher, uh, getting through and transforming tremendous suffering. I mean, just tremendous suffering. Uh, no, it's a beautiful part of the book, Mark, and I really love that. Thank part. you. Uh, yeah, uh, I had a, I had a little conversation with Ramdas. I hadn't seen Ramdas in twenty years, and but oh. I visited him last spring. I went to Maui and stayed oh, yeah. for a couple of days with him, and uh, we were driving to the beach one day to do his swimming, and uh, they were playing on the, in the car. They were playing a tape of him talking in the seventies before his stroke. And he was such a masterful storyteller, weaving his personal history in with the spiritual teachings. And I asked him, you know, how did you learn to do that? Were you just improvising or uh, did you have a plan before you started talking? Uh, And he said, oh, I was just improvising. And I said, well, how did you learn how to do all that? He said, I used to listen to my father giving speeches, raising money for Jewish charities. (laughs) I didn't know that. Oh, that's tremendous. I it's thought that all, was great. Yeah, really. Oh. <laughs> uh, and and talk about who's really good at that too is Sharon, of course. I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, I'll I'll set her off on things. Uh, no idea. I'll say Sharon. Okay, let's talk about whatever, and she'll launch right into it uh, as if she had known about it for a week and, and prepared notes. Yeah, and yeah, just yeah. tremendous. Tremendous stuff, and the other interesting thing um, that I found just in the in the get go around it, it was really uh, and touching, and and I'd love for you to tell the story really around your father, 
because uh, he he was uh, you know close to to the end of his life and um, and you had felt that you had never ever really talked to him. And, yeah. Well, uh, well, I had I had talked to him. I had talked to him about a lot of things, but but uh, not but, that. Yeah. But 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 not about the spiritual work. Not about my interest in Buddhism or my. Uh, uh, my deep involvement with meditation. And uh, I actually told Ramdas this story when I was visiting him. So, because uh, I, I think it was the, like the kernel of my new book. It's what prompted me in retrospect. I think it's what prompted me to write the book. Um, my, my father at the age of 84 was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor, the same tumor that John McCain has and that Ted Kennedy passed away from. Uh, only with in my dad, it was in the non-dominant side of his brain that only affected balance and uh, sense of direction. So uh, cognitively, he was fine. And he was an academic physician, a scientist, a researcher. He was working in his lab at the hospital right up until the moment of his diagnosis. But he got lost driving home from work, the same 15-minute route that he'd taken for 30 years. And that was how they found the tumor. And by the time they found it, it had already progressed. And he knew, and they knew there was not much to do about it. I knew that, too. Um, and my father knew that there was nothing much to do to treat the tumor. I knew there was nothing much to do. Uh, but I remember sitting in my office in New York. My father was in Boston. And uh, I realized I had never really spoken to my father about what I maybe had learned from Buddhism, what I had learned from meditation about what might happen when we die. And I thought, huh, should I try to talk to him? I always, he was always very supportive of my work, but never uh, engaged in any kind of real conversation about it. Uh, he, I knew he wasn't interested. He was a scientific materialist who you know, believe that when you die, you just die and that's it. And you go into, you know, some kind of uh, void version of a deep sleep. Um, but I, uh, I decided I would try to talk to him and I called him up and I said, uh, you know, we've never really talked about this, but uh, this is our chance. What do you think? And he was very, he said, sure, go ahead. Tell me whatever you want. And I said, um, well, here's what I, here's what I understand. And I tried to put it in plain non-Buddhist language. Um, there's a place inside of us, a place inside of you, that's always been the same. That's always that's that's who you've always been. And when you were 20, when you were 40, when you were 60, when you were 80, if you closed your eyes and went there, you knew you were you. Uh, but if you tried to put your finger on that feeling, it would be hard to find because it's a kind of transparent feeling. And but nevertheless, you know that you're you somehow in there. I said, what the Buddhists say is you can learn to relax your mind into that space and ride that out as the body uh, uh, deteriorates and disintegrates and that you can take your consciousness out through that portal. Hmm. And, and uh, he was like, okay, darling, uh, I'll try. <laughs> and that was our, that was our last real conversation. Oh, uh, um, oh, that's so great. really. <laughs> but I felt I was happy about it. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. Um, so just before the podcast, I was at my optometrist and I drove up there and there was a car with a decal that said, sit, ego, sit. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's so great. 
And, uh, and then, and now from, from your book, I quote, the most important events in our lives from falling in love to giving birth to facing death all require the ego to let go. Sit. <laughs> this is not something the ego knows how to do. If it had a mind of its own, it would not see this as its mission. For sure, if I if it had a mind, uh, uh, but there is no reason for the untutored ego to hold sway over our lives. No reason for a permanently selfish agenda to be our bottom line. Uh, and you know, this is in the introduction to the book. And uh, uh, I mean, to me, this is uh, we have a lot of listeners, Mark, that. Uh, our next generation, and they're they're maybe not so interested in the isms, Hinduism, Buddhism, any isms, uh, but they certainly, as we all are, are interested in a little, uh, an understanding of who we truly are and a way to transform many of the um, obstacles with our minds, with our egos, with our emotions, and so on. Uh, why don't you just elaborate on, on the possibilities therein? Certainly someone like you. Oh, Jesus, I haven't even introduced you. For God's sake, Mark is an incredible uh, therapist, psychotherapist, psychiatrist in, uh, in New York and uh, has been involved also in Buddhism. Uh, we just launched into how we have all these friends in common, like you, know, like you all know that and who we are and who he is. Uh, and uh, Mark has written a number of books, and we'll, we'll, all of these will be available to you when you go to uh, BeHereNowNetwork.com slash MindRolling. We'll have it up in the show notes. And uh, Mark has worked with uh, incredible people over the years, and, uh, and I just, uh, you know, I said this in the beginning, but this book, Advice Not Given, uh, it should be a, a keeper for anybody who's looking to find uh, a perspective that is plain spoken about how we can deal with uh, our basic neurosis, neuroses, and uh, uh, and uses the Eightfold Path, as he said. So, Jesus, sorry about that, Mark. What? You, you, it's nice to be introduced in the middle of a conversation. I think that's great. <laughs> the, the, um, the thing that's unusual about my background is that, yeah. is that I found Buddhism and in fact met Ramdas uh, uh, very, very early in my own development when I was just starting college. Uh, I took an introduction to world religion class by chance because I met someone who was taking the class and I wanted to get to know her. Otherwise, I had no, uh, no real interest in it. But the, um, <laughs> I can relate, the, yes. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the first semester of the course was all about Eastern religion, and that was my introduction to both Buddhism, Hinduism, and Taoism, actually. And uh, I went from there very quickly. I met, a, I met a friend of yours named Dan Goldman, who was uh, then a graduate student teaching fellow in a psychology course I was taking. Um, and uh, he suggested that I go out to Naropa because he said friends of his were going to be teaching out there. It was the first summer at Naropa, and I met uh, all the people you were talking about before, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield and Sharon and Ramdas. Uh, it turned out my, uh, one of my professors at Harvard was the person who had both hired and fired Ramdas, but David McClellan, yeah. who had stayed friendly with, uh, with him. So very, very quickly, I was immersed in this world of mostly Westerners who had studied already in Asia. And it was only after 
five, six, seven years of doing meditation retreats and traveling in uh, Asia with them that I decided to go back and go to medical school with the idea of becoming a psychiatrist. So, um, so my, my uh, learning about Western therapy was always done through the prism, through the lens of what I had learned about uh, Eastern thought. And then it, since um, finishing all of that a long time ago, more than 30 years ago, mm. I've worked as a therapist with a sense of, you know, how can I integrate these two worlds, both of which I've learned so much about, in particular about how our, our egos or our defense mechanisms uh, that we needed in order to protect ourselves as we, as we grew up, uh, how those defense mechanisms, how our own egos uh, end up obstructing us, you know, making a barrier between who we think we are and who we have always been. And so my work as a, as a writer, as a therapist, and my own personal work as a, uh, uh, as a student of Buddhism uh, has been about re-educating myself so that I could make contact myself with that place inside of me and help other people make contact with that place inside of them. Mm. Yeah, and, and certainly this is uh, an outstanding uh, contribution, this book, because that's very self-evident as you read this book. Uh, well, I, I, tr I try to use myself as yeah. my main case study. My, my editors were always pressuring me to write about my patients, and I was always somewhat reluctant to do that because it meant kind of listening to what they were saying with an eye towards using it for my own purposes, <laughs> which, I do, which I do some of. But I decided kind of early to try to use what little bits of memory I had uh, to reflect upon my own experience and to, you know, sort of like we, we talk about screen memories in therapy, like one little memory actually contains the seed of something very important. So I try through my writing to find whatever that was that was so important that was making me remember that actual little event. Yeah. And then to use that to illustrate some of what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, it, and there's a bunch, talk about seeds, that's a good word, because there's a bunch of seeds I just f found throughout the book that really um, helped to illuminate stuff for myself. I mean, I, I found it very useful. And uh, one of them here is uh, people learn to make room for themselves, to be with uncomfortable emotional experiences in a more accepting way. They learn to make sense of their internal conflicts and unconscious motivations to relax against the strain of the ego's perfectionism, but make room for themselves. I think that's a, yeah. a great phrase. Talk about that for sure. Yeah. Well, that's coming. That's coming a lot from my um, my understanding of what sometimes doesn't go so well in early childhood, ah. because uh, infants and young children are filled with emotional uh, experiences, as we know, but they're cognitively, they're not developed enough uh, to understand what it is that they're experiencing. So they have intense rage, intense love, intense uh, erotic feelings, but um, without the parents there adequately, we, we say a, a good enough uh, parental environment, without the parents there to kind of hold the feelings and reinterpret them for the child, um, then a lot of us end up uncomfortable with the more intense emotional 
experiences that we're capable of. Uh, we learn to sort of push the feelings down. That's what Sharon was talking about, about the ambient opaque silence that surrounded her grief. Um, and uh, a lot of people who are attracted to the spiritual pursuits are doing it in a way to, to um, damp those feelings down also. They're looking for other ways to actually hold themselves at bay. And a lot of my work has been to, to sort of counter that tendency that I saw in people when I was younger. Um, that people, even uh, very advanced meditators and so on, some of them are afraid of their deepest feelings. Um, and, uh, uh, but I think there's a way to use the meditation to uh, make them more tolerable mm -hmm. and, and, and to grow through that process. Right, and make room, make friends, any of those yeah of... yeah you know into uh, uh, radical self-acceptance you know because i think the capacity to love is intimately connected with our ability to hate and if we're mm. if we're afraid of our uh, aggressive destructive uh, 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 angry uh, feelings then we're usually blocked in some way around our love too mm. right and I find also in speaking with people and doing what I do in my own work, uh, people have this feeling that once they get on the path, the spiritual path, path of awakening, then, you know, that's it. And we're, we're home free and uh, a lot of spiritual bypassing goes on at that point. Uh, but uh, you say awakening does not make the ego disappear. It changes one's relationship to it. I think that's super, super important for everybody to understand. The balance of power shifts, but there's still work to do. Rather than being driven by selfish concerns, one finds it necessary to take personal responsibility for them. A great, a great uh, phrase. I mean, I, uh, we are a good example, meaning Ramdas and Krishnadas and I and others that you know that we're over in India with Neem Karoli Baba. And uh, my first moment, one of the deepest uh, connective things that happened inside myself that I may not have been able to put into words at that moment, but put in after, was, okay, that's it, done. <laughs> We're here. This, this is obviously the experience of the transfer, transformed being is the example of that. And, and here we are, many decades later, slogging through it. And, yeah. and really, it's the relationship with the stuff. It's the reactivity that's changed. And I think, that, you know, you're highlighting this is, is really all through the book, actually. And I think that's really important, yeah. no? Well, you were, you were all super lucky to have that experience because you did tap into something very real at the heart of, uh, of your being, you know. So you all have that, uh, that memory and that faith. Um, I, I try to talk in the book about using the Eightfold Path as a guide to continually dealing with that protective ego defensive armor that keeps us away from really living in that experience that you touched so long ago. Yeah. And uh, I, I was... Uh, uh, helped in that the, the the writer Stephen Batchelor, who's another mm. you know contemporary reinterpreter of Buddhism, he found in the uh, 
in the Buddhist sutras, many, many instances of uh, uh, Mara, the, uh, the person who, uh, the, like the God or the devil or the uh, projection of the Buddha's ego, you know, who uh, 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 teased and tortured and played with the Buddha right up until the point of his enlightenment. Even after the Buddha was enlightened, Mara was still whispering in his ear, telling him, oh, just drop all the spiritual stuff. You know, you could still mm -hmm. just, you could be a ruler, a great ruler, you could be rich. You know, like these people don't understand you. Why are you wasting your time with them? So even the Buddha was in dialogue with his ego after his awakening. And so if it was true for the Buddha, it's definitely true for us because we're not even awakened yet. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so. Uh, being willing to be real about the hold that our egos have over us is very important. Yeah. That cuts through the sort of false spiritual uh, uh, posturing that we sometimes see. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the first noble truth, I believe, is right view. Is it? Uh, first noble truth is suffering. Suffering. Uh, or, I'm sorry. Or, the first uh, unsatisfactoriness. The, yeah. the first. The first limb of the eightfold, eightfold path. path. Yeah. Is, is is right view. Yeah. And, the, the, eight, uh, the eightfold path is divided into three parts. the The first part is about conceptual understanding. It's about the way you think about things, and that's right view and uh, 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 right motivation. And the, the second part of the Eightfold Path is about how you behave. It's like an ethical uh, set of uh, principles. And that's right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then only the third part is about meditation. And, and those are uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Mm, yeah. Uh, and in right view, uh, one of the things you pointed out was uh, it was the Buddha's way of proposing something as a way of encouraging people to be realistic about themselves and the nature of things. And is that not the first, the first step forward that one needs to take? Is that, and having the right uh, perspective that, that isn't coming from uh, your identity, mind, roles, emotions, or whatever. Right view asks us to focus on the incon incontrovertible truth of impermanence. It's a big word. Rather than trying to shore up a flawed and insecure self. And here we get to the, the core, and, and I've discussed this on many, many podcasts with uh, many, many teachers uh, around, uh, and impermanence is a scary word for absolutely everybody at one point or another, or it's a very freeing word. I mean, in, in fact, I was just... Uh, we're, we're putting together... We have a retreat coming up with some of the with Ramdas and uh, Roshi Joan Halifax and Frank Ostaseski and Robert Thurman and Bob's uh, coming as well around uh, I, I thought it'd be great for it to be around uh, Thich Nhat Hans thing no death no fear and to really investigate that and one of the things was the realization of impermanence uh, it uh, transforms into love which was a really there's a you know a complex concept, but impermanence and the realization of it again is is throughout your book here, and uh, um, as as I say, it's it's a especially for people just waking up through whatever means, through meditation, through psychedelics, through a book, through a teacher, whatever. 
that ha that does come in in an immediate way the idea because we experience it all of us every day everything changes every moment all the time and and there's resistance against that and so um, yeah talk about right view and and our resistance to accepting impermanence well they say in in buddhism that if you try to meditate without an idea of what the target is it's like a blind man shooting arrows you know not not knowing where the uh, where the target is at all so uh, the reason that the right view, right motivation comes first in the Eightfold Path is that you have to kind of set your conceptual understanding so you know why you're doing this sort of ridiculous thing of, uh, of sitting and doing nothing when you're meditating. Like, what, what are we looking at when we're meditating? What should we be focusing our mind on? It's more than just the breath or the mantra or whatever. So in Buddhism, in Buddhist psychology, they say there are three marks of existence, three principles of existence. The first one is impermanence. The second one is, they, they call egolessness, which no one understands. And the third one is suffering or unsatisfactoriness. So I focused in the book on impermanence because it's the easiest one to understand. Um, it's very hard to argue with impermanence. If I tried to talk about egolessness, everyone would just get confused. But in, impermanence, we know, you know, we can feel it in our lives. We can feel it in our loved ones, where if two people love each other, they're fated, one of them to lose the other at some point. We can feel it in our bodies as we age. We can feel it moment to moment. We can feel it, you know, when the uh, boiler breaks down. Uh, when our car gets stuck, there are so many variations on it. So we have an inherent tendency to resist the truth, the realistic truth of impermanence. We, the ego, as you quoted me earlier, the ego wants stability and security. It wants coherence. So the ego is all about, uh, you know, like, no, I don't want this. Uh, you, you know, give, give me some peace here. And uh, the Buddhist thing is about, in right view, is stop fighting with it so much. You know, this is a reality. There is a way to surrender to it. If you can learn what to do with your mind in the face of impermanence, then you've got a leg up. Mm, yeah. And, I'd, you know, there's a beautiful story here uh, in the book, and it's in the right view chapter. And it's about your wife and her best friend who got ill, cancer. And uh, do you, you mind telling this story and re related to Joseph and? and no, uh, sure. Just at, re really at the beginning of our relationship, right, right after um, uh, we were married, my wife's uh, best friend uh, came down with a very rare and uh, and uh, untreatable form of cancer, and she was clearly going downhill. And um, uh, I was already close with Joseph, had done a number of retreats with him, traveled with him in India. Uh, but my wife didn't know him very well. He came to visit. She poured her heart out to him about what was happening with her friend. She trusted him because I did. And uh, uh, he said something on the order of, uh, stop making such a big deal about it. Uh, he said it very kindly. And we, when we... Uh, uh, told him about it like 30 years later. He was sort of aghast that he had actually said something like that. 
um, yeah, because it doesn't when you uh, tell the story or when you read it on the page it it can come through as sort of cold uh, you know and and like a Buddhist teacher who's like oh well this is all just already broken you know uh, but he said it very kindly and it really touched her in some way it made her see I think that uh, she was making this inevitable change about her more about her than about her friend and it just like zeroed right in on something in her and she uh she let go of that extra quality that she was putting on the experience and that left her actually more available to her friend and curiously more available to herself so she said she went into her she's a sculptor my wife she said she went into her studio after that conversation and she uh, put everything away that she was working on and she started fresh, just working with uh, uh, wet plaster, which uh, uh, when it's wet, it's very moldable, uh, but it dries very fast. So she had just a very short time to work with the plaster. It was like a metaphor for life. Uh, mm. And she mm. just started messing with it. Uh, and uh, out of her messing with it, she started to see this like Buddha-like form started to emerge. She said if she looked at it one way, it would just look like a pile of shit on the sidewalk. But looked at from over here, it started to look like a Buddha. And mm. she decided to give one to me. Um, and uh, there's one on the cover of the yeah. book. Um, yeah. So she ended up making about, uh, yes, exactly. Uh, she ended up making several hundred of them um, uh, over a, a period, several year period. And they mm. provided her with a kind of comfort. Mm. Um, she had never made any kind of realistic or iconic work before. And it was sort of an anomaly in her career, but uh, it holds something of that first conversation with Joseph and of her love for her friend. Yeah. And don't, it's, it's, it's a very common thing uh, when we have that kind of trauma with people around us or ourselves of that, that extra, I forget what you just called it, extra something that we yeah. throw in there that has nothing to do with, we just pile it in there. In fact, to me, it's similar. I find like anger is something I deal with. And I find if if something happened here we're gonna have a little therapy session. Yeah, here. come on, anger. <laughs> I find that when I get, and I've talked about this before on podcasts, when I get, if, if something triggers me and I lose it, you know, if I, my, uh, I find there's a point at which okay, I'm going to go for it now. Fuck it. I'm just letting go into this. And, and it goes way beyond what that particular incident might have been. It, it's, it, it gets pulled from the deepest, darkest recesses of my emotional makeup and, and mind. And, and everything gets thrown in there and it gets magnified a hundred times from where whatever the wrong I might have felt, uh, uh, you know, that that triggered this thing. So to me, that and that happens, and I see that with people too, with around grief especially. They absolute there's that extra something that gets thrown in there that has nothing directly to do with the situation that triggered the grief, anger, and so on. Is that not well? True? Except it, except it might actually have a lot to do with what triggered the. Um, uh, the feeling because it, that it, the intensity of that rage that comes over you is actually intimately connected with uh, your true self. 
uh, it's just uh, uh, it's uh, going in the wrong direction. Um, you know, we 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 talk in the psychotherapy world about the the ruthlessness of an infant's uh, uh, desire, the ruthlessness that manifests as anger, uh, thwarted uh, uh, thwarted uh, uh, desire actually becomes uh, you know has the flavor of uh, losing it that you're talking about. So whatever the uh, the, the little event is that triggered you, uh, you know, in your present day uh, uh, incarnation uh, might actually be pulling uh, from a much, much earlier time when uh, the authentic uh, infant you was trying to get uh, his needs met and uh, uh, crying out, you know, indiscriminately. Um, so if you can uh, turn your mind, if you can pay attention to the intensity of the affect of the feeling that's coming over you at that moment, instead of directing it outward at the perceived uh, threat, you know, if you can turn your awareness like you know how to do back on the intensity of that feeling, you, it, might, um, uh, it might do something. Hmm. I'm going to have to... Might have to investigate this a little further with you okay. when I'm in New York. Okay, <laughs> you can investigate it further in yourself. Yes, I'll start there. Uh, in right motivation, um, and this is everybody. Listen to this out there. Okay, <laughs> you know you can see I'm getting something here. I think everybody can. We do not have to be at the mercy of our neurosis, neuroses, if we do not want to be. The conscious mind, when properly oriented, of course, that's a big thing. When properly oriented, we'll have to, you'll have to talk about that, can, with practice, rise above the conditioning of its subconscious influences and intentionally, intentionally direct a person's activity. Habitual and repetitive patterns of reactivity dominate the untrained mind. There's some big stuff in there, though, in terms of... Well, the of book is actually easier to read than you're making it seem, but... Uh. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but we don't have to be at the mercy of our, of our neuroses. And, and, uh, well, we're all at the mercy of our neuroses. Yeah. We're, we all are most of the time. Yeah. But the, the idea that we don't have to be all of the time, or that there's the potential, as I was saying to you a minute ago, when even when we're most clearly at the mercy of our neuroses, you know, and we're, we're ignoring everything we've learned in our entire lives because we're, you know, we're, we've, we've lost it in that moment. Even then, there's the possibility of turning our awareness back on ourselves and learning from the experience. But it's, it's all about being willing to, uh, uh, I think, tolerate the feelings that are forcing us to act out you know, instead of acting out, we can learn to uh, uh, use those exact moments to train our minds. And I think that's when you, when you, as part of this, when properly oriented, the conscious mind, when properly oriented. Yeah. What are we talking about? Properly oriented. Well, are properly, we talking about well, practices? Like to, um, no, it, it has to do with like, what's the real point of meditation? You know, at least from the Buddhist point of view, the real point of meditation is to find the self that we take to be so real that the Buddha said is an illusion. You know, that's the experience of emptiness. 
that is so uh, uh, valorized in Buddhism. So how do we how do we find the feeling of self? You know that is, that the Buddha says is unreal. We have to look for where we experience it as most real. You know when do you feel yourself to be most real? You know and so the um, uh, one of the things I love about Buddhist psychology, and Robert Thurman was the first one to tell me about this, is that one of the times that uh, uh, the self reveals itself to you is when someone you love uh, um, uh, does something to hurt your feelings. When someone you love experiences you as having done something that irritates them and, uh, and they get angry with you. And you have the feeling like, I didn't say that, I didn't do that. You know, how can she be thinking this of me? You know, that's where there's the self, I didn't do that. How could she think that of me? How could he treat me that way? So instead of reacting, you know, as we all do, but those are opportunities, even like looking for a parking space in New York and someone steals the parking space from you, you know, like what? You, you know, um, those are moments when the self that doesn't exist uh, uh, reveals itself, you know, uh, most clearly as something that we think does exist. So the trained mind, the tutored mind knows, oh, what a great opportunity, you know, my, my uh, best friend is accusing me of being a jerk, you know. Uh, so I can use that, I can use that to divest myself a little bit of this core feeling of, well, I'm really somebody, you know, who needs to be taken seriously kind of thing. Righteousness. Gotta right. let yes, go that's a little good. bit that's of righteousness, the, right? Yeah. 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 Mm. Right speech. Okay, this thing, I'm just not lying, I'm going to go through all of the Eightfold Path here, everybody, because this is a huge subject. Um, but, uh, Mark, this yeah. thing in right speech... Right speech. I loved it. it it's something, I, uh, if I took away, if you said, okay, what was the one big thing? You t I mean, there's a lot of things to take away in this book. <laughs> how we talk to ourselves is yeah. as important as how we speak to others is a huge takeaway. Now, everybody who's listening now, just, just walk away from this podcast and then keep in mind as a mindfulness exercise, just the awareness of the self-talk that you are doing as you walk around the day and 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 just look at uh, in my case uh and i'll i'll have to s start with something that you know people maybe get bored of hearing and we're all bored of hearing it because we have we want if anything we watch the news or we see social media or whatever but when our current president's name comes up i have a bunch of self-talk some of it's talking right at the TV if I happen to have it on, and it's all negative. And after, and as I was reading the book, and this came up, and I, you know, mindful of what is going on, I'm a fairly mindful person, and I saw the intensity of forget what I'm saying to people, and we conspire together by virtue of, oh God, we got to get rid of this thing that's out there. What can we do and what actions can we take? And aside from all of that, the internal dialogue that is negative and around, you know, that's just a, a, a really transparent example, but the self-talk uh, that uh, embroils us fur further into uh, the, uh, the unconscious uh, 
self that you just talked about uh, is extraordinary. And uh, yeah, I, I guess it's a big takeaway. Well, we're all about. we're all talking to ourselves all the time. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. So uh, to become aware of that, usually it's subliminal, and we take those thoughts as oh they're, that they're just there, you know. Um, people go on a meditation retreat and they're meditating, meditating in the, in the meditation hall, and then they go to their rooms and close the door, and then they're talking to themselves again, you know, like that. So to, to be able to acknowledge that and pay attention to the flavor of those thoughts, about half of us have intensely negative uh, 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 flavor to most of those thoughts, you know, and, and the other half of us are, are usually criticizing other people. We're not <laughs> criticizing ourselves, we're criticizing <laughs> other people. Um, mm. So, to, you know, to, uh, to make use of that time, uh, to make use of that fact, to get a sense of, oh, look how we're propping ourselves up in this way all the time, all the time. You know, we're thinking the same kinds of thoughts over and over and over again, hardly ever having an original thought. You know, and the uh, it's a mistake to think that the thinking goes away from spiritual practice. You know, thinking is one of in Buddhist psychology, one of the five skandhas. It's there all the time. You know, you don't get rid of it like the ego. You don't get rid of it. Uh, but you by paying attention to the texture of it, to the flavor of it, you actually can start to see it shift and just the awareness to it by itself helps to bring that shift about. Mm. You know, I love the, your little phrase, the stories we tell ourselves, we repeat under our breath. Under our breath. Our breath, yep. yeah. Yeah, muttering, muttering, muttering to ourselves, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, uh, a, there's a remnant of who you were as like an 11-year-old or an 8-year-old, you know, I don't know if you have siblings, but yeah. the way you, the way you uh, your siblings treated you or the way you were thinking about how they, how you were treating them, or there's a remnant of that childhood, adolescent self in all of us that comes out in our most private thoughts. Hmm. And um, that can manifest around drugs, it can manifest around sex, it can manifest around any kind of addictive uh, tendencies that we have. Um, uh, so it's worth paying attention to. Yeah. And you do say here, and uh, I think this is a, another great offering f from you, from the book, a person has to show up before their internal monologues can be unpacked in question. And, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, that well, that was from Sharon again. That was yeah, yeah. someone asked Sharon, you know, what's the most important thing in therapy? And uh, they thought it was another psychiatrist. They thought love was the, you know, the central healing element. And Sharon was like, no, I think just showing up for their appointments is really <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> the core thing. So I took that and, you know, showing up for yourself, that the sense yeah. of being real that we started out talking about. Right. You Which know, is I'm going to sit down and be real with myself now. Yeah. You know? the thread through this whole book and yeah it's been a thread through my last uh, uh two months of talking to all of our mutual friends here about this very subject and uh yeah uh, another uh in the right action chapter another th uh to me extraordinarily important point for for us all to take uh, to heart is letting go and it has more to do you say with patience than it does with release 
think we need to talk about that because that you can't you can't walk one foot in front of the other without both of those things. Well, I was I was trying in that in that little bit. I was trying to counter um, the sort of naive notion that letting go of our uh, difficult emotions means that we just release them. You, you know that oh, I'm angry at someone. Oh, I can just let go of my anger and it goes away, kind of thing. Uh, and that feels impossible to me. I don't think it. I don't think it works that way. So I was trying to uh, find words for well, what is the experience of letting go? You, you know, and I think it's more about tolerance or patience with oneself, so that instead of being totally uh, attached, I guess we would say, to uh, whatever our uh, immediate feelings are. Uh, we can uh, hold it in slight remove um, so that we don't have to be uh, pushed around in the way that you were describing earlier, you know, happens to you at your uh, most difficult moments. Yeah. Patience. Yeah. You know, Jack Cornfield does a great thing in many of his talks. It's a recurrent theme. We're human. It's okay. <laughs> that sounds like Jack. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, that made me think of that when I was reading this around patience. Because we get so on top of ourselves and self-judging um, so much of the time that uh, there's no space left for, to allow for whatever to, to even transform and, and, uh, and not be, have such a, a grip on us. So, yeah, to me, this patience is okay. We're human, you know, this stuff yeah. is going to go on. Well, you know, I told this story in the book about uh, uh, traveling some years ago on my book tour. And um, uh, I, was, I was picked up by a young woman who, uh, uh, you know, was going to drive me from the airport. And she had a teacher who had come out of a three-year uh, Buddhist retreat but he had developed colon cancer while he was on the retreat. And uh, when he came out of the retreat, he was uh, uh, close to death and he came and lived with this woman. She took care of him until he died. But she told me um, uh, his last dying words were, no, 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 help, help. Mm -hmm. And she was like so upset that this, he was a very uh, uh, advanced practitioner you know, why should his last words have been so fearful? And I, I think this idea of patience comes in even there, that we, we have this idea that, we, you know, if we've done our spiritual work, we're supposed to be able to die easily, you, you know, uh, like we're supposed to be able to do everything else easily. And uh, maybe we're expecting too much in this one lifetime, you know, to uh, or maybe dying actually is uh, uh, scary and painful, uh, at least as we're going into it. So to put the to put the judgments aside and the idealizations aside, and instead to be real with whatever the experience is. And for her, it was to be real with this, you know, beloved person's experience, uh, instead of resisting. Uh, what he revealed to her, you know, at the time of his death, there's some kind of patience 
necessary there too. Yeah. Even even in not knowing what the lesson was, you know. Right. right. And that another thing also that you talk about in the book, uh, getting comfortable with not knowing. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. That's also a, a very. It falls in line with patience and spaciousness and allowing things to be, is being comfortable. Yeah, it falls in line with well, like we're just these human beings, and how did we get here, and what <laughs> what are we doing here, <laughs> you know, and uh, what's it all about? Right. So we uh, turn to people like Ramdas to tell us, and yeah, yeah. Well, when we were, I mean, it just makes me think when you say what's it all about, and my first experience of Neem Karoli Baba was to to see somebody. There was no I in there. There was no he, he. He never. There was no relating from, from, me and you, or us and them, or no polarity anymore. There was just a mm. pool of whatever, and that thing, which doing whatever was necessarily the right thing to do for everybody, including, just giving somebody a chapati. Mm. They needed food. They didn't need anything else. They didn't need any spiritual counseling. And of course, all the way to the other side where people ask for, oh, I need to get married. My son needs a job. You know, that's what they do in India with gurus. Uh, all the way to us, which was a whole other realm of what we needed in that time. So the beauty of service was so uh, transparent for us in, in those moments, which is why Ramdas talks only of these days. What I only know three things he told me, or two main things: love everyone and tell the truth, and serve and remember, and that's it. You know, so uh, yeah, we were really fortunate to have that example uh, so early on. But here I am, and I'm still ready to jump all over somebody if uh, you know. I feel <laughs> well, watch how you say it. Yeah, right. Uh, right effort. Just uh, there's a couple of things here before we leave you. Um, I, I think that's a, something we, sh we, we should mention because uh, there is a, we in the West have such a penchant for we're going to do this and we're going to be the best at it and we're going to get it done as quickly as possible and uh, we're going to put everything we have into make this better than anybody else has before. And so I think I'll, especially around meditation, there's a lot of preconceived notions, especially with people just getting into it, about uh, uh, what uh, that represents and, and there's going to be a real will used to get from point A to point B. Well, you see right both. After. You know, we, we have in, in terms of effort, uh, I agree in the West there's this striving, uh, intense striving and want to get it done. And, you know, and then at the same time, there's a really profound laziness. You know, so so people, you, you know, people know they they know what the path is, but they don't really do it necessarily, you know, because to really do it means to sit down and spend time being honest with themselves about themselves. Uh, and it's uh, there's a big tendency to evade that. So um, that that's what's beautiful about the Buddhist path is he's always like, well, a little too much on this direction, you're just going to get more anxious. And a little bit, uh, you know, too much in the other direction, and you're just going to be, like, wasting your time. So the middle path is, is actually, you know, keeping the effort tuned. Uh, they use the uh, 
example of tuning an instrument, you know? So if the strings are too taut, it makes a brittle sound. If they're too loose, it's just flabby. So you have to keep yourself tuned properly, you know? And what does that mean? And, and what that means is something that each person has to discover for themselves. So that's the, the rightness of, uh, of all of these things, right, right speech, right effort, doesn't mean that there's wrong speech and wrong effort necessarily, but that the rightness involves a kind of balance. You, you know, that's more the meaning of, uh, of whatever the Sanskrit word was originally. Mm, yeah. Middle path. Yeah. Uh, and and some, something tuned to the correct frequency, you know, it's like tuning your mind to the correct frequency. Yeah. We used to get a lot of that when we first learned it, how to play Indian instruments, especially the tampura, tambura. Oh, I bet. You'd spend yeah. hours tuning this yeah. thing. Once yeah. You and it was a, it's a, a great example of, of, of the patience yeah. and spaciousness and yeah. effort. Well, right the effort. same thing with the mind, you know, that's yeah. all coming out of that same South Asian tradition where you spend a lifetime learning how to tune the instrument, you know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, in order yeah. to play the classics. Yeah, great analogy, really. Uh, there's just a couple of th- in the in the. Uh, there's a great thing in in the epilogue actually, uh, and you quote Suzuki Roshi, who is. Uh, by the way, everybody out there, if you do not know Suzuki Roshi, back in the day, he was one certainly for us one of the first wake up calls. Great master about the Easter. Yeah. Zen, Zen mind, beginner's mind. That's yeah. his. Get that's that the book. great. That's the great book. Yeah. Absolutely. Read, read one little page at a time, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyhow, you're describing uh, the relief that comes from getting over yourself. Mm. Again, I just love that expression. He used the expression mind waves to describe the turmoil of the ego struggle with everyday life. Waves, he would always insist, are part of the ocean. If you are trying to find the peace of the ocean by eliminating the waves, you will never succeed. But if you learn to see the waves as part of the whole to not be bothered by the ego's endless fluctuations, your sense of yourself as cut off, separate, less than, or unworthy will shift. That's a, a, a beautiful thing in itself from him, huh? Yeah. Well, I felt like he was talking directly to me. That's why I put it in the epilogue. Uh, uh, that's so great. Um, but... Uh, above all things, and, and you know, you've mentioned and we've talked a little bit uh, throughout this conversation, really getting down to, okay, why? What is this, you know, we, we gotta, we're looking, we're self-inquiry, we're finding uh, who we truly are, and we're letting that come to the fore, shall we say? Uh, and, uh, and here's something that I think is... Uh, is the core of it, and it's uh, you say every aspect of the eightfold path is a counterweight to selfish preoccupation. The Buddhist reprieve is accomplished not by leapfrogging over the ego's needs or demands, but by zeroing in on them, acknowledging and accepting them, while learning to hold them with a lighter, more questioning, and more forgiving touch. That is a, a crucial thing. For all of us in this life, to to embody that, Mark. I, I mean, I well, really... there's a. I think there's a simpler way of saying it, actually, which is that there's a path of fear or there's a path of love, and uh, we're all we all tend towards the path of fear, but 
but that's where the ego is. So by paying attention to that, to how much that's motivating us, we actually can find our way to the path of love, which is where we, where we um, want to be. Yeah. And where yeah. we truly are, you know, once we... It's where we're coming from, where yeah. we're coming from where and where we're, we're going back to. Yeah. So exactly. might as well be here now. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. What a perfect ending. Advice not given, a guide to getting over yourself. And uh, I can't uh, more highly recommend this book to, to us all, really. Mark, wonderful offering, really. Thanks, Raghu. Thanks so much. Yeah, and uh, everybody, you'll get a link to be able to get the book, uh, Mind Rolling. You go to beherenownetwork.com slash mindrolling, and you'll see the show notes and the books, and we'll we'll put in Suzuki Roshi's uh, book as well, and uh, uh, Sharon, and, you know, everything that's uh, near and dear to, to Mark will, will be available there. And, Mark, if people want to get to your website, yeah, yeah. There's a website. They can. They're. They're. It's right there for them. Mark Epstein, MD. I think. Yeah. Doc. Dot com. Dot com. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can do that, and if. And there's a there's a Facebook page. I have a, a oh, pretty up to date Facebook page, which is also Mark Epstein, MD. And, okay. Um, great. Uh, I did a conversation the other night at the Rubin with a psychic medium that I told Ramdas about, named Laura Lynn Jackson, who's wonderful, and they they streamed the not the questions, but the conversation is, uh, it's there on my Facebook page also. Oh, really? I'm going to yeah. go there. Somebody yeah. mentioned this to me, Laura Lynn Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. She has a beautiful book herself. Oh, really? Called okay. the light between us. But the, okay. the conversation, I think people were really uh, touched by the conversation. I, I was. Oh, beautiful. You'll have to introduce me to her so I can have a chat with her too. Good. Well, anyhow, thank you very much, though, really, for being here, Mark. Good. It's, Thanks it's, a lot. And, uh, I've wanted to do this for quite some time, and uh, and, and I'm happy you're here. And uh, let's do it again one of great. these days. Great. Um, I'll look forward to it. Great. Okay. See you around. <laughs>